0: Hello folks, this is Our New World and I'm Max Wimpenny. Welcome back after the week's break. For those of you who tuned into last episode, I was talking with Pow and Maddy about green entrepreneurship and what it takes to set up a business. In today's episode, we're doing a 180. We're moving into the world of academia. I'm talking with Dr. Diana Wall. She's a distinguished professor whose research focuses on the jungle beneath our feet, which is soil. Like a lot of things in this world, it's easy to forget that our lives completely depend on it, but the ground we walk on affects our food, our water, and our well being in a way that's practically immeasurable. Diana's research focused on looking at nematodes. They are this amazing, weird, microscopic worm that if you google and look at some videos under a microscope of them you realize that they are part of this whole other ecosystem that we don't even realize exists and the more you kind of connect with it and the more you realize what's going on beneath our feet it is actually amazing what that does to your perception on soil these worms can live in some of the harshest conditions which took her to Antarctica to do a lot of her research so she's done a ton of traveling And they also tell us a lot about how life in soil contributes to healthy soils, ecosystem services, and sustainability. And they tell us a lot about climate change. Along with considering our relationship with the soil, Diana gives an insight into what it takes to become an academic. And like business, academia is really important to understand at a basic level, considering it drives and informs global policy. Our future relies so heavily on new discoveries and continued research. Diana is on the front line of that, telling us about what it takes to get to the top. So if you're interested in getting into academia, have a listen on. Write in if you've got any questions about it. We'll pass them on to Diana. Otherwise, settle in and wait to be inspired about soil. Diana, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, I'm glad to be here.
0: Uh, Firstly, people might be familiar, probably are familiar with terms like ecologist and soil science, but could you go into a bit more detail about what those terms mean, what you do as a soil scientist and ecologist.
1: Sure, glad to. I I don't know if I even knew the term ecology when I started uh, in school, but when I was in college, I was very interested in hiking, being outdoors, uh, rafting. I grew up in Kentucky and there are lots of rivers there. So uh, canoeing was big. But it was it, what was fascinating to me was the interactions, and that's what ecology is—it's the study of all the interactions of, of what we see and we don't see, it, and the abiotic environment, you know, the climate. And so that was pretty interesting to me. And I uh, I actually took a couple of courses in college that were kind of like, oh, okay, I'll go take that. And I wasn't very interested in it when I started, but one of them was uh, just microbiology. And I found that fascinating, looking through a microscope and all that, and then seeing all these living things. And then the second one was parasitology. And I took that my senior year in college. And I didn't like that as much. I was fascinated that there were, you know, tiny roundworms that could be parasites of horses and, you know, birds. And we were looking at all these animals and looking in their intestines at these parasites. That's the part I didn't like. And uh, so then I, I you know, thought about other things to do, but I came back to uh, working on parasites of plants. And when, when the uh, professor told me about that, that there was a whole department in, uh, in the Ag College, in the Agricultural College, I was like, that they look at these roundworms that are parasitized plants and it's, all you had to do was just kind of take a soil, you know, spoon up some soil, add water to it put it through a little screen like a kitchen mesh screen or your your uh, when you're when you're cooking and put it through a mesh screen and then look at what came was caught on the screen and look at it under the microscope and there it was all these wiggling little worms and all sorts of little animals that i didn't know about so i really found that fascinating but i think it really came from the fact that i spent so much time outside when i was growing up thinking about you know what are these plants? What are they doing? What's their relation to the river? And it wasn't that I was doing it in a scholarly way. It was just like, isn't that cool that I always see that plant near the river?
0: Yeah, I get what you're saying. It's kind of a curiosity thing when you're younger as well, that if you can, yeah, yeah get into it. Um, and is that? I mean, that's kind of answered really. But is that why the research happened?
1: Yeah, I think you know, for my for my PhD, I went into ecology, studying the interactions of this one species of a plant parasitic nematode one tiny species on a plant root of one species just a single plant and a single nematode and the interactions of them and it was it was fascinating because here is something that you don't think about number one but number two when you see that it knows exactly where it wants to be on that plant root it's got a long root growing it could choose anywhere along there but there's something evolutionarily or whatever that this particular species only hits right behind the root tip and i thought my gosh these are so specialized they're they're just like humans you could name each one of them you know that each species does something very different so that ecology working in the soil looking at plant roots kind of led me into this cross cross disciplinary ecology of interactions of a different habitat rather than looking at things above ground and say a forest i was looking in the habitat below ground to see what kind of animals plants and the interactions were mm. and that's kind of what separated me i think from people that start as soil scientists will study first the, they study the soil as a habitat what are the physical and chemical properties why is this one so muddy why is this one so sandy? What is the difference when you try to grow crop plants or your garden? If you've got these these different so that isn't much more, it was based, soil science is much more based in how soils were formed. You know, what was the geology geology behind them in that particular area? Yeah. And then how does climate and the vegetation impact these plants that we use? Yeah. Whereas I came from, gee, these little animals are cool. And oh, by the way, they happen to be in soil and they like to eat plants and they're very specific about which plant and where they eat. Yeah. So they're they're uni- unique animals. That's the way I started. Yeah.
0: And did you have someone who kind of inspired you into that or is it all just completely self-driven? No, no. I know you said about him sharing someone, sorry, um, a professor sharing or a mentor sharing the courses, but was no. there someone who said, you should look at this, this is cool, you
1: know? Yeah, that, that was, I would have not done it without Uh, Dr. Chapman, who was the professor. And I was in botany at that time and he happened to be in that department. And he said, you mentioned that you like parasites. You ought to come see mine. They're a lot cleaner than animal parasites or human parasites. And so I went over and spent some time in the lab and I was just, yeah, he he was a huge influence on me and a lot of other people to explore this animal that not many people were exploring yeah
0: yeah i mean it is quite niche for people listening like i said um before we got on the call i it's something that i'm very familiar with having gone through you know university and studying it but it's only cropped up a couple of times and it is it is a really important part of kind of telling us about the soil and telling us about the biodiversity which we'll get into in a bit but it's nice for people i know who are thinking about phd's and think that they're very specific and could I study something that specific for three years of my or four years even or five years sometimes of my life um and so I wonder I mean was it was it ever a, a struggle doing that because it is very intense
1: and- well I, you know I, I felt like people dissed me a lot because I wasn't doing something cool like studying viruses <laughs> or you know bacteria or something like that but I was fortunate enough to have a postdoc at the University of California Riverside that is the whole department of nematology and what was amazing to me was the people that were there were all like mentors. This one woman knew when I would find such and such a species in the desert, she would say, oh, then you're going to find species. Why? Because they always co-occur. And I thought, how does she know this? You know. And they would play kind of games with me. They'd say, here, here are some nematodes we collected. You tell us what ecosystem they came from. I'd always like, oh my gosh, how, how did they do this? But it wasn't that they knew all the species. They also knew something about what they did, that not all of them were parasites on plants. Some of them are really important in decomposing uh, trees, leaves, bodies, and all that sort of stuff. They feed on the bacteria and the fungi and whatever, or they're predators in soil. So you've got all these groups with all these species in them. And here I was in a department with all these people. Oh yeah, that one always occurs with this other species. Okay, I hope I can learn that much. So it was really inspirational to be around a bunch of people
0: yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, I, again I sense that's probably a great thing about doing the PhD is is that side of it. And were there any um, I mean were there any major challenges, not just I guess for the PhD, but being in research. Has has there been any major challenges in the academia world, in the research world?
1: Yeah, I think that the the people that you will hear usually who work on nematodes are ones who are in medicine and work on a nematode called Sino-Rabdita And this is a model nematode because it can reproduce, Its life cycle is like two weeks and it reproduces uh, a lot (laughs) daily. And they can look at that and they've got it mapped. It was one of the first model organisms to be sequenced. And so they can look at that and they can actually equate it to human, human nerves, human uh, enzymes, human, the the analogs are really fantastic. And so I think the Working in that field is highly competitive, uh, but it's all on one species of a bacterial feeder. Whereas in ecology, I think now versus then, uh, yeah, it's a lot easier now for people to get jobs in ecology working on invertebrates and soil than it was 20 years ago, 30 years mm. ago. They just, it was just kind of like, well, you're kind of an esoteric, why don't you work on insects, you know? People just weren't that interested in them too.
0: Yeah. And are there any, is there any advice that you'd give for people trying to get into, not just uh, not I just um, ecology, I guess, but but research as well? Um,
1: well, I think persistence is a lot. If you love what you're doing uh, and, and you find it exciting, then sure, you're gonna have down times in the lab where your experiments don't work or you don't get a grant uh, or your colleagues don't think what you're working on is too cool. But if you do, Have the persistence to stay with it and look at kind of like it opened my eyes to go to another university to find out they were interested in nematodes in the whole ecosystem not so much of what happened when they chewed on plants Mm -hmm. so you start seeing and when you meet other people i would say uh going to meetings scientific meetings with other people who are studying something similar that is that was a real plus to see the excitement other people have for the same organism. Mm, nice. Well, so I would I would always advise students. that try to, you know, push them out the door. Go to this meeting, try it out. If you don't like it, it's okay. There'll be another one that's a different kind yeah. that may have uh, more a, a different take on the particular organism or your subject.
0: Yeah. No, that's nice. I think um, that strikes me as one of the massive advantages. I, I haven't done a PhD, but I imagine it would be nice just being around like-minded people, right? Like. Mm-hmm. You go into a work world and there are
1: it definitely people, makes
0: a but... difference. Say again? Mm-hmm.
1: it again. De- it definitely makes a difference yes yeah. you know to be be associated with people who also are it's their lives work and they're finding things and they know things you don't know it just gets you excited because you can see different tracks of questions that would be important for your research yeah.
0: constant learning that's the way yeah. right. and so uh, let's focus in on the nematodes because these are, and I, I, for the listeners, I will reference and I will share some videos and stuff that you've sent me, which is fantastic. They're essentially worms, right? Just for very basically. Now that's super unscientific. I realize, but they are kind of a a type of worm, but very small, very microscopic. Yeah.
1: Very, very microscopic. In fact, one of the things I like to do is when somebody comes in the lab and they don't know nematodes, I'll pick up a vial that has maybe a thousand nematodes in it and it's in like clear water. And I'll just say, do you see them? And they say, no. And then you put them under a microscope and they just see thousands of these squirmly little uh, worms. And then we can start looking at, do you see this difference and that difference? Yeah. You know, so you can focus down. So yeah, it, it is a lot of fun to do it
0: that way. Yeah. Well, I've got to say, when I first saw things under a microscope at like a high level, it's like watching a video game because you don't get excited about it. And then you kind of look under this microscope and you realize there is this crazy, like predator-prey evolutionary world going on at that level that you can't see. And it's, yeah, it's amazing.
1: Oh, yes. And and it's, when you say predator-prey, one of the things that was kind of a shock to me was that mites, a soil microarthropod, you know, just has legs and keeps climbing over. It eats nematodes like, there's one kind that eats nematodes just like their hot dogs just goes up to them because nematodes are basically they're basically balloons you know if you puncture them they kind of blow up Mm -hmm. so you try not to drop soil or puncture their bodies but to see this mite crawling along going towards this nematode and then just crunch and there goes the nematode that was i thought boy soil is a real jungle (laughs) Lots of predators and parasites. Yeah,
0: for sure. I was going to say, I hope there's something on Google for that because that's what I'm doing straight after this. Um, and why are they? Why are they important? Because I mean, there's, there are obviously tons of reasons, but in terms of why not only you're interested in them, but why they're so important because they tell us a lot, especially about soil right. biodiversity.
1: Yes, I think I think they're important for a number of number of reasons, and that's one. Here is something. Here is an animal that is almost everywhere. So you can do comparisons, if you wanna do comparison studies of of how are these animals affected by climate change in one forest ecosystem versus say a desert, you can look at that. The other thing is because there's so many of them, there's a lot of carbon in their body and they, they breathe a lot of CO2. And so they're very involved, very critical, I think, I would say to the soil carbon turnover of, so everything is made of carbon, everything living is made of carbon. And so here's this mass of nematodes, these worms in soil, and they are not only made of carbon, but they are breathing carbon. And they also help to stabilize carbon by feeding on the bacteria that stabilize the little particles. They move through soil. And then I think there are, there are besides being in the carbon and nutrient cycling in the soil, there's some other things that they do that are, are pretty important. I mean, I, th- I like to tell people if you thought about not having the organisms that are involved in decomposition, we would be walking out the door every day in, you know, 10 times higher than us, really tall amounts of dead leaves, dead trees, dead bodies, dead birds. Something is decomposing that. And it's not just one thing. It's a, it's a food chain. So bacteria and fungi start on it. Nematodes come along and accelerate them by feeding on them. They want more. They want more breakfast. So they eat more bacteria and fungi. And that helps to break down this dead organic matter in the soil. And the whole process is to turn these nutrients back into the soil for plants to grow. Hmm. So it's it's just a cycle of taking what has come from the plant that's dead, letting it fall on the, when it falls on the ground, having it slowly stair-stepped, with nematodes and other animals, decomposed, and then those nutrients are available for plants and for the rest of the food chain. So there's a pretty big food chain. In yeah,
0: yeah, it's, it's difficult, again, I think because it's all microscopic, it seems so difficult to imagine, right? It's like space, it's, it's at that level. <laughs> And you don't see it. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, we literally walk all over this stuff and don't think about it. I was going to ask uh, another question about the research in an- the Antarctic that you did. So that was part of your lab, which it, obviously I, you would be better than I am in explaining what it was. But why was it up there as well that you decided to, not up there, sorry, down there, I suppose, <laughs> depending on where you're standing. Um, wh- why was it there that you decided to study these nematodes in the soil?
1: Well, I think there were a couple of things. I had, I had been, as I mentioned, on my postdoc and then ended up staying in that department for a while. And I'd been studying arid soils, you know, the deserts of the Southwest. So I'd studied in the Hornada Desert to look at nematodes there. And I'd compared that to the Mojave Desert of the US. And so there were lots of, lots of trips looking at what was unique about the nematode community that lived in a particular desert. But one of the things that kept driving me nuts was there were so many species and I was just not great at identifying species. And so I was talking with a colleague who I still work with and I said, we need to go somewhere where there's fewer nematode species. And by that time we knew it would have to be someplace without plants. And another colleague of mine who had been working in the dry valleys is huge, it's the largest, ice-free area on the Antarctic continent said, well, it's a desert and I'll send you some soil samples and see if there's anything in it. So then we started looking through the literature, we started reading it, and lo and behold, we got a grant to go down. There were nematodes mentioned, but they were only near glacial melt streams. That's where they'd been identified. But the vast majority of these dry soils in the dry valleys, people hadn't really looked at any nematodes at all. So we expected that trip to be one year, you know, just one field season, and we'd never come down again. And we were so surprised because we sampled across the area, traveling by helicopter out to get a soil sample, taking the soil samples back into the field station McMurdo, um, and washing them out. And then looking at what was there was quite amazing. It was just kind of like going to Mars and wow, You know, you found something in this dry place and people have been looking for life. Here were nematodes. And what was amazing, there were no mosquitoes, no birds, no penguins, no seals, unless they were dead. If the seals wandered into the valley, it was just too dry. And and who was the top of the food chain? This tiny little invertebrate. I thought I'd gone to heaven. (laughs) Furthermore, species... The number of species, we found out later, there were species that were only associated with wet, wetter streams when the glaciers melt, which is only about six six weeks out of a year. And then in this vast area of dry soils, there is this tough nematode named Scott Nema for Robert Falcon Scott, who was one of the first explorers to go to the Antarctic, And he didn't come back, I should mention. Whereas Scott Nema thrived, this nematode, uh, it is, it is an amazing animal and it is happy in saltier, drier, desiccated soils. And in 2018, 19, again with a bunch of collaborators, we went to 85 South near the pole and they're mountaintops that stick up uh, above the, the miles of ice. And we found Scott Nimmin there too. So Scott Nemma is a very hardy animal, Hmm. only found on that continent, feeds on bacteria, some little algae that grow on the soil. So it has a a very slow food chain and it's only, you know, it's kind of found the fountain of youth. We we now have looked at why does it survive? And my colleague Byron Adams at BYU has spent a lot of time looking at what, what makes it survive over this long winter versus You're standing out in the field when we go down in the summer and a cloud goes over and the temperature will drop 20 degrees. So what is the difference? Is there a difference for an animal that lives there with this summer quick turn off and turn off, turn on and turn off versus going all winter long? And it turns out they have a different, they shut down their metabolism. This tiny little worm can change its morphology, shut down its its, morphology. it's metabolism, go to a different pathway and coil up. So it looks like much more of a potato chip, we would call it, nice. I don't, just a round circle. And it can be blown by wind and go somewhere else. Whereas in the summer, when, when I'm down there, and even though we may have a, a cloud go over and the temperature drop 20 degrees, it will use very similar um, proteins to turn on, genes to regulate, just, you know, cold-tolerant cold, cold tolerant genes, yeah. just like many other animals now. Yeah, I was
0: just thinking of, I mean, people who watch like Planet Earth and Frozen Planets, they'll know a bit about, or they might've seen those, um, I think recently it was the frogs, wasn't it? Or the toads that end up freezing and they've got, what do they have? Amazing. Antifree- yeah, it's crazy. So it's like that and they kind of switch off, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, it, but here it's so interesting. And so, you know, jumping ahead, the the questions are, and we're starting to have warming events in the valleys, the, the temperatures have changed, what happens? What will happen to these animals that are so conditioned to to a particular climate?
0: And so that's when it started to get linked to climate change, right, the research, and what were the sort of things that were uh, found? Because this is where the nematode goes from just interesting to a a properly informative piece of research that says, okay, this is actually telling us something about global climate change not just this because people think about these things again as like okay that's one nematode in this area in the antarctic doesn't bother me but actually maybe i mean you could probably comment on this again more is to say well that single bit of research actually tells Mm -hmm. us so much and contributes to the whole argument of climate change and biodiversity loss and why that's important right so what were the sort of things that were being found and the conclusions that were
1: Well, I think, think, number one, we were very fortunate in that we had, you know, I worked with a group of collaborators that are called long-term ecological research people. And this is another reason I think that uh, the study is so important is because there were glaciologists, there were people who were geochemists. So there was a big holistic picture of why this particular little animal in the soil was so important. And I think one of the things from all these studies has shown is that we are not sure whether this species will recover with warming and wetting events. So I, let me just preface this with the, the first uh, 10 or so 15 years I was there it was really cold and we published papers on that saying the nematode is declining it, the abundance is declining. Everything seemed to be declining and it was just very very cold and then all of a sudden Around 2000, there was a switch. It was just like a light switch went up. And what happened was we had a wet, warm, almost like floods running across the the mountains. And it was so striking. And we thought, well, maybe this is a one-off event. That isn't true. It's happened since. You don't know when it's going to happen, but there'll be another warming event. And the response of this tough nematode in these dry soils to that warming event was to decline. It, it does not like water. Mm. So it is either going to adapt by being dispersed into the southern, um, towards the South Pole to those mountaintops, and maybe it'll survive there or it's going to adapt and we don't know that. It's only got a short season to adapt every year. But we do find it every once in a while with a, what we call the wet habitat nematode. But the wet species are definitely going to increase. There's just not as many of them right now. So that in terms of abundance and carbon output and biomass, uh, Scott Nema still at this time is still, has more contribution to the carbon cycle than the wet ones. Mm-hmm. They're just not as many of the wet ones. But if these warming events keep happening and the valleys which are predicted to in you know 50 to 100 years uh, warm up and we start seeing lake levels rise yeah. um, or you know stream more streams and water uh, it will be interesting to see what has happened to this one species. yeah and I think making it broader, you know again we go to the global scale of the loss of biodiversity. No, it may not matter in this particular, Uh, for somebody who doesn't go to Antarctica. But if you're looking at here is a species that is not only adapted, but efficient at turning over carbon in the soil. It feeds on bacteria. It's ready to go. It knows its food sources. There's no kind of like introduction to a species there. I think that's one of the, the biggest things is this species could be lost. There will be a time period where we will see maybe invasive species that people bring in. You know with their soil on their boots and so that's one of the big worries is that there will be that kind of competition it also could be that what will happen is you know the valleys will get green it'll start to look more like patagonia or something like that
0: and that's presumably not obviously it's different because what you, what you you say about it being having to be quite adapted to that climate so where we are like i'm in the uk right now it's fairly temperate climate the nematodes will be totally different in terms of their adaptations and the species around here. But presumably there is kind of a sensitivity. I know they will presumably, I keep saying presumably, Presumably, they will outlive us as humans. Yes. But there will be a transition period where, I guess, nematodes that struggle, that will have an impact on our soils. Because we. I mean, we hear about the big species like polar bears and pandas and the emotive species, but really the things that are gonna impact us are things like the nematodes in our soil, right? And so is that kind of relatable to where we are in temperate areas as well?
1: I think it is because I think what we're what we're learning and there's a lot of scientists now studying soil biodiversity, we've got new techniques that, you know, in the past 30 years that have come along, molecular techniques, different stable isotopes, precision of machines that we can look at and so there are a lot more people looking at soil organisms and what they do in terms of ecosystems, services and how they interact. And one of the things they found out is that all these different kinds of invertebrates and bacteria and fungi, this whole thing, they're all connected. And you go in and you disturb a soil, Uh, you, you change the land use, you pave it over, you do something to soil, and you come back and you look at that soil later, those linkages between all these species are broken. And so there's definitely a decline uh, in the number of species and this is what I'm talking about, this decline in biodiversity. And this was a study across Europe where they looked at managed soils that were very intensively managed like with tillage versus not. And they could tell that the number of different types of species, arthropods, nematodes, all were declining across Europe in the more heavily managed soil. Mm. And we hadn't really considered this and so now we've got climate change on top of loss of plants that are changing because of climate change or they're being eradicated. So the ecosystems are changing above ground, but we haven't paid enough attention below ground. And so one of the, the kind of new studies that's going to be done is a something called a Soil ob- Biodiversity Observation Network across it's, it's in Europe, but it's gonna be, samples are coming from a lot of places. And what we're gonna do there is standardize all the methods, look in a conserved area where the policies have been to conserve above ground biodiversity. Compare that to say a managed agricultural system or something like that. Then also look below ground and say, did the policies of conservation pre- preserve, conserve all these species mm-hmm. below ground and then compare that to the mismanaged, you would say, or the changed ecosystem. Yeah. So that's gonna be done and we hope that it actually is gonna be done. Uh, there are a lot of people involved in it and it's just gearing up. So it's pretty exciting to have this soil observation and that will go for you know, a number of years so that we can go back to that same soil sample or that same plot every year pull out the animals and check it again and the microbes people are doing all sorts of microbial work on it Mm. and I think these kind of these these experiments like the paired uh intensive managed and less intensive managed across Europe uh with all these people studying the same thing meaning the same plots and looking at different parts of it gives us a much more holistic picture it's kind of like if you uh, went into a forest and it's starting to burn you not only want the forest fire people there you want the soil people there you want to know which trees are going to put off the most uh, smoke that's going to be damaging to the nearby houses you know so you've got a lot of players in there and the water people and where is the water coming from and i think that's a very the fire is burning but also soils are being destroyed and we have to be aware of what we're losing in terms organisms below ground
0: that's so interesting and you, you talked about ecosystem services there which is something again i mean at its most basic level it's, it's what the natural world does for us right it's kind of the services mm-hmm. that are provided by the natural world and there are lots of different levels and again what we see are things like air quality and what's right in front of our faces but the soil is one of those services that feeds into a lot of other things that that we get right so we, we're concerned about climate change but actually the soil is one of the things that we're not really talking about as, yeah. as a big issue, but it it's
1: is. Really Im- it's really important because these, these organisms, I, I like to think about these food webs below ground compared to say a food web in the ocean where there's a big shark at the top. And you know, you look at it, the things in the soil are gonna be smaller, but they're storing carbon. There is a lot of carbon stored in soils for millennia. And when we go through and plow, we release that carbon to the air. So that's not very helpful. Uh, The organisms help to lock it in. Each one of these, whether it's a millipede, a centipede, a nematode species, you know, an ant or whatever, they've all got some job at at tearing apart some organic matter, breaking it down and storing it somewhere in the soil particle. So it's like they're hiding and building houses with with soil uh, to conserve this carbon. But the other things they do is as There's some that are just, they're so important to preventing erosion or decreasing it because they channel, some species only of earthworms only go down. They don't go horizontal. Other species go horizontal. And so they've got their jobs and they're creating air spaces in the soil, aerating the soil, letting water flow through the soil. And then that brings you to the next thing that soils are really important for clarifying water and getting water that we can drink. And watersheds, if you look at the, the whole job and all, think about all the animals and microbes in soils, they're doing a job of cleansing that water so that we can have it to drink. Yeah. Or in beer. And then I think there you know there's some other things like people haven't really and they we're getting more into it. Who are the predators and the parasites or you know just who's the biocontrol in soils? Which organisms which invertebrates are actually the biocontrol. They're regulating uh, what can die kind of thing in in terms of the big food chain. So you put all these together and I just find it fascinating that no matter when you go to sleep, there's 24-7 going on with all these little animals that we know so little about. And I think we're cracking into that.
0: Yeah, good. Well, I mean, it's like a little factory. I, mean, I was just thinking about walking over little, like, parks right. and everything and this happening beneath us. Because I know, I know really that it's there. But when you think about it, it is mind boggling. What? yeah, I mean, what's okay. So that's something is to talk about what people are doing who are walking over, Um, fields and things. If you're interested in agriculture, this might be, you might be switched on thinking, oh, this is really important. If you have a garden, you might be starting to think, okay, maybe I'll think about my soil differently. If you don't own any green space, I wonder if your thought is, okay, well, you know, what can I do? But with that in mind, what can people do now to be sort of thinking about the soil around them and actually doing something? I'm not sure if they could be doing something. Yeah, I,
1: I think they're they're, quite a few things they may not be really hot items with everybody but you know one of the things I thought about when I lived in LA was was where is the oil from my car going and you trace that down just that small thing well they just don't go dump it in the ocean it went into soil somewhere landfills for garbage what are we doing and in putting into that we're even getting microplastics moving into soils now and so that's a big issue so I, th- I think a lot of these are tied together but the other thing that, that is really uh, a big topic of conversation right now is, is for people who are interested in the, the city parks and, and uh, vacationing at pretty places, what are we doing to regenerate soil? And there's a big push on how do we kind of restore soils uh, by adding organic matter or trying to build up the compost for the animals that are in it. So that's, that's kind of a side one. But urban areas are now also being really interested. Even those in New York, those little square—they on the sidewalks—they have this little square. It's not even a meter big, and they stick a plant, a tree in it, you know. And that, but they're paying more attention to what can they do to get that to be better soil for these to live longer. So, what kind of compost can they put in it? And just little things like that. I think the other thing is that. You know, in terms of education, we need to start thinking about soils as part of our ecosystem. It's not just plastic we walk on. You know, we have to think that these grasses we love or the flowers that we're gonna use in our wedding, but I don't ever go to a park, those flowers came from soil. So I think there's a number of things and, you know, there's a website um, with a lot of different actions that people could take to save our soils is what it's basically called. is
0: that is that what it's called because i will share the link yeah i think it would
1: be good yeah i'll send you the i'll send you a, a couple of links right. and actually in europe they they've had a lot of policy action to try to get like it's in the us we have a clean air policy yeah. act you know we're going to have clean air and it turns out we don't have a kind of a clean soil policy act but at least europe has been considering it
0: Good, so I'm very proud now that we have
1: that. (laughs) Soil health is also a big, soil health is a big uh, thing that I think that is worldwide. People are starting to think about what does it take to keep soils healthy and not desecrate them. I mean, even in Phoenix where we're having dust storms every year that just black out the city in Phoenix, Arizona, you have to have the street lights come on automatically in the middle of the day and it may last six to 12 hours. Well, why is that soil blowing in my city? You know, what has happened around me? So you, we have to realize that just because it's a local problem, it's very much like climate change. It's local. We can work on it in our space. But we're also helping people who live miles away.
0: Yeah, that I feel like that's a really interesting and good point to kind of hammer home that I'd not thought of at all about saying that like, what you, it's like sort out your own house before you start talking about other people's, right? It's like if you can do what you can locally, that has a big impact elsewhere that you just don't see, and, and that's great.
1: Yeah, I think that's something that I think people, you know, so why do I have to use electric, less electricity or which kind should I use? Who cares? Well, it has an impact somewhere else, too. Yeah. And that, that really is, you add those up, that's a big impact of people.
0: I actually think that's a really, really lovely thing to say. I was going to ask you as well, it's just the question I always ask, and it doesn't have to be about soil. If you could recommend one thing that people do to sort of move the dial for our planet, environmentally, it could even be socially, what would you ask them to do? What one thing?
1: This is probably too big of a thing, but I, I think look, look at the things outside your house and say, what does that tree take to grow and what does it do for me? And if I need to plant more veggies or more trees or my garden with flowers, that is helpful and beneficial. And I think bringing attention to soils is going to help too. You know, here's here's something else that I always think about because it has to do with Paul. Like one time he asked me, you know, what's the stuff about soils and nematodes and all that? And I you know, you only care about soils if you eat. But If you also want clean water, clean air, biocontrol, you also care about soils. So it's bigger than that.